after months of haggling and overcoming concerns about our nation's growing debt. On August 10, 2021, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill. It was a $1.2 trillion package that was supposed to be a victory for Mr. Biden's domestic agenda. But for the last 40-plus days, that infrastructure bill has been stuck in the U.S. House of Representatives. Did you know that 100 years ago, civil engineers believed that building a bridge across the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean was in fact possible? Well, the marvel of that engineering feat would have certainly paled in comparison to the colossal political engineering required, as we have seen in our news this week, to get the votes in the U.S. Congress to pay for it. Hey there, news peelers. Today is October 1, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. I'm a big fan of reading newspapers super early in the morning. I guess I'm kind of old school that way. And I've been diligently reading the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about the pending infrastructure bill. But I gotta tell you, the newspapers aren't cutting it for me this week because the news of the pending House of Representatives vote on infrastructure is changing by the hour. It's developing so fast that I gotta be glued to my TV screen to figure out whether or not we'll have an infrastructure bill signed into law this week. And by the time you listen to this podcast, you may already have that answer. The infrastructure bill seems to be hostage to progressive Democrats' demand for the passage of a $3.5 trillion climate change and social policy bill. And all of this was overshadowed from time to time by the debt ceiling, the imminent fear that America may soon default on its debt. Out of frustration, I decided to take a break from all this politicking and just just better understand infrastructure. For example, what was infrastructure like in the early days of our nation? What were the motivations for building and maintaining infrastructure back then? What are the engineering considerations for infrastructure? Does infrastructure ever fail despite good planning and appropriate funding? To get some answers to these questions and to better understand infrastructure all around, I spoke with Mr. Henry Petrosky. Professor Petrosky is a professional engineer who is registered in Texas. He's also a chartered engineer registered in 
Ireland. At Argonne National Laboratory in Illinois, he was responsible for R&D efforts in fracture mechanics. And from 2004 through 2012, he held a presidential appointment as a member of the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. In addition to all of that, Professor Petrosky has a secondary appointment at Duke University as a professor of history. So, he's our kind of guy. His current research activity focuses on the interrelationship between success and failure in design. He also has a strong interest in the nature of invention and in the history of technology. He has written close to 20 books, and he's the writer and presenter of a BBC television documentary that is based on one of his books, which was also broadcast on PBS. A link to Professor Petrosky's academic homepage, which includes a list of his many publications, accomplishments, and awards, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Petrosky and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Petrosky, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you very much for taking this time for this conversation with me. So infrastructure is in the news. Uh, the president and Congress are negotiating massive funding for America's infrastructure. Uh, while we're not here to talk about politics, I am interested to know if the word infrastructure has a specific definition to experts such as yourself, sir? I, w- I would say that the word has uh, different definitions to different professions. Perhaps different, okay. It. Uh, engineers traditionally have uh, thought of infrastructure in physical terms, roads, bridges, harbors, so forth. And uh, it's been very closely associated with engineering, especially civil engineering. If we uh, do a little historical background, uh, engineering was associated with military up until into the uh, oh the 18th century. Toward the end of the 18th century, uh, if you wanted to be a an engineer in America, uh, a civilian engineer that is one that didn't work with the military, you had to go to uh, West Point and take courses in it. But you were still associated with the military. Are you suggesting that back then there were no such programs, universities with civil engineering courses? In the United States, in America, that's right. Oh, okay. Interesting. So uh, now we're talking, we get into the uh, 19th century. Uh, By this time, the term civil engineering had entered the vocabulary. It was introduced in the late 18th century to distinguish it from military engineering. And of course, military engineering had a lot to do with infrastructure, as uh, even as the term is used today in the terms of uh, defensive walls. If you uh, visit a lot of uh, European cities, they are walled mm-hmm. cities. Yes. Military installations, really. 
So military uh, defenses and uh, engineering, military engineering went together. And of course, in this country, in America, we have a lot of historic forts. Those are also a kind of infrastructure. But it became clear in the uh, late 18th and into the 19th century that there was a civilian component of infrastructure that was more or less independent of the military, and that was having to do with trade and commerce, especially, especially as, uh, oh, say the uh, British uh, colonized and were all around the world trading. Uh, they wanted to be sure that it, they could do it efficiently, and not just the government, uh, even more so the private enterprise that participated in this. So it became very important for them to uh, build harbors, build roads from those harbors into the interior of countries. And of course, roads usually require bridges because there are obstacles to pass and so forth. So the earliest idea of infrastructure as far as uh, its association with civil or civilian engineering, it has to do with uh, uh, commerce. Uh, and that was associated with the economy uh, and the good of a nation. It was felt that if a, a nation thrives, if its economy thrives, therefore the nation itself will thrive. And we see that today. Uh, we see an awful lot of talk. And uh, I know we're not going to get into politics, and I hope we don't. But uh, we do, we do, uh, we can recognize without being political uh, that uh, television reports nightly with how the economy is doing and uh, how the economy is doing and how the infrastructure is doing are, are intimately linked. And the closer you, you look at uh, what kind of uh, legislation is being proposed, you can see that linkage very, very strongly. But, but uh, yes, that, that's all included. Broadband, for example, I think uh, most people agree today uh, would fall under the category of infrastructure that's got to do with communication, just as in the 19th century, the telegraph was very important, and then the telephone, for commercial reasons. Almost initially, almost everything that we benefit from today as individuals uh, started out having a commercial oh, market, let's say, and that's what motivated a lot of inventors. Uh, inventors, I, I, I won't speak to a topic that you probably know as much about, or if not more than, than I do. We'll talk about it in a minute, inventions, go ahead. Don't have why go on with the with the, uh, with the invention? But but we'll talk about that later. I understand. So the the idea of infrastructure has expanded. Yes, and in the 20th century, especially the later 20th century, there became an increasing awareness, especially uh, including among the engineers, that there there are questions relating to uh, what is termed climate change, environment. Uh, uh, Things like like that. So the the whereas in uh, the early nineteenth century, the uh, earth was thought of um, as uh, oh a resource to be exploited, and it still is really. That, it that, really that, is, yeah. And so forth, but there's a, an increasing sensitivity to it being uh, perhaps limited, and that we are stewards of it, maybe rather than just exploiters of it. So this has evolved with uh, social norms, social feelings. Yeah. Uh, engineering is, is always sensitive to, I, I'll say, the environment in the usual sense of the word, but also the environment in which the profession operates. And uh, it, it depends on clients. If uh, nobody wants to build a bridge, the engineer uh, 
engineering firm won't build a bridge because they don't have the resources to do it. It takes capital. It's all intertwined. Our whole society, our whole economy, they're all intertwined. And infrastructure is just one aspect of it. You mentioned environment. In in many of the books that I've read uh, in history, sort of tangentially, once in a while, you come across lines (laughs) about um, cities with horses and horse-drawn carriages and uh, there's, there's some of them that get more into detail. They talk about the smell of horse urine and horse manure. I hope I'm not going on a limb here. Was was the was the advent of the automobile thought to benefit in the environment initially? I mean, you, you now have cleaner streets, and this is this is the way my book on infrastructure begins. Really, uh, oh, okay. My book called "The Road Taken." And uh, yes, everything you said about the streets was true. Uh, this is what led to things like sidewalks. It's what led to paving and, and so forth. Uh, now, the introduction of the automobile was not uh, was seen as an improvement over stepping in horsemen, or let's say. I bet, yeah. It became increasingly clear as the automobile multiplied the way horses did. Initially, horses were not a problem when there were few of them. But when they became so numerous, uh, they became the problem. It became noticeable. Uh, Early automobiles were curiosities, and there weren't enough of them to do much harm. But uh, other than their danger, people did worry about the danger of uh, being hit by an automobile. I guess the way they worried about being run over by a horse. But as the automobiles and vehicles generally, including trucks, multiplied, the exhaust became a pollution problem. Uh, oil slicks and so forth so, and, and junkyards what do you do with the old cars you know, do, you, do you recycle the steel or do you not so it, uh, yes eventually I, I would say within a half century or three quarters of a century of the introduction of the automobile it was seen as a potential as I, I won't say the direct comparison with horses was often made but I think it, it's a fair uh, comparison and that's and, one of the reasons we have uh, so much of a push for electric cars and for non-fossil fuel, uh, because these are considered. Was the progress of infrastructure um, an American and a British thing, or did Western Europe, such as France and other countries, also started to really pay attention to this in the late 18th century, early 18th? France. 18- France um, as, as always, was uh, a theoretical leader, but uh, being a theater, theoretical leader, I, I mean, they designed bridges back even in the 17th century that were could be considered modern, but they didn't always carry through or didn't develop the feel for it, the how-to. Oh, interesting. Uh, the British, on the other hand, were the, more the doers. So the, the, the comparison between the French and the British uh, continued for quite a while. The French were the theorists, the British were the practical ones. So France, uh, uh, roads that were talked about in France were actually built in Britain. So Britain, I would say, was the, uh, if we're going to you know, jump from Rome, I mean, Rome had some pretty good roads too. Exactly, so yeah, yeah. To the, uh, say, the modern era. Then, yes, Britain led the way. And because Britain had colonized around the world, then Britain led the way in distributing its technology around the world, too. It was very common in the uh, 19th century, especially, 
for uh, British engineers to travel to South America, to Asia, and so forth, doing engineering, showing the locals how to do engineering. And that's a tradition that actually continues to this day. A lot of uh, American technology is being uh, exploited around the world, and not just American technology. I mean, these days, the Chinese technology. Yeah. Uh, sometimes for political reasons, often for economic reasons. But uh, it's a, so many of these things we're talking about are, are timeless in the sense that uh, one culture or country or nation will dominate at one point in history. But history repeats itself, as we all know. It does, yeah. Uh, when, you, when you were talking about the British system, British engineering and its impact on their colonies, um, I thought of this question. Uh, was there sort of a drop in the intensity or the level of um, infrastructure development in America after it became an independent nation, after the British left? Um, where you know, the other, another way to ask this question, I guess, is what are some of the early grand infrastructure projects in America as a country, no longer as a British colony? Well, during colonial periods, the, the British couldn't do any more in America than they could do at home. And at home, their uh, roads were primitive by today's standards. So uh, whatever they had, sure, they would export uh, wherever they wanted to or could. Mm-hmm. But that didn't mean that the roads were any much better than, uh, well, primitive roads, simply. Is. We didn't have really modern roads until the late. Uh, until the, let's say America was was established until you know the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and, uh, and not, it didn't happen all at once. Of course, it it's still into, uh, into the 18th century, 19th century, I should say. When we talk about infrastructure, um, I'm interested to get your uh, input uh, on the concept of failure sort of trial and error. Uh, when I used to practice patent law, uh, you know, we, you see, we would see how inventions came about, a lot of trial and error. And you have several books on the concept of failure in general. I'll just, I, I, I'll identify some of them. Uh, one is titled Success Through Failure, The Paradox of Design, Understanding Failure, Evolution of Useful Things, To Engineers Human, The Role of Failure, in successful design, and all these books are, are on your homepage, and I'll provide a link for them in this podcast episode. Um, what is your interest in failure, or what is your perspective on failure when it comes to infrastructure? Uh, I can give you a short answer or a longer answer. Uh, the longer, <laughs> let's start with the short answer, and then if it needs more clarification, we'll go to that. The uh, everything uh, in Technology, I'll even go beyond engineering, uh, really grows out of failure. Uh, the reason inventors invent, in my opinion, is because they see the existing technology that they're interested in as failing or having failures or having faults. Uh, failure doesn't necessarily mean that something totally collapses. If something is designed to do a certain, um, have a certain function, and it doesn't perform that function well enough, then people say it fails. It fails to meet its success. It's you know it's it's goal goal, and uh, if it's out in the marketplace, people might not buy it. 
and it will fail in that way. And the business that supports it might fail and so forth. So everything is failure in response to failure. How do engineers learn? How do they advance technology? So when it comes to infrastructure, is it better to use the word shortcoming? Because when, it, when we think of failure, it sort of becomes frightening with respect to infrastructure. You don't want to hear the failure of a bridge, right? Uh, actually use the word collapse. You wouldn't want to think that. You're talking about a bridge structure's shortcoming or, or something that aspect, well, right? Uh, engineers see things a little more broadly when it comes to the term failure. Uh, and I, I will try to, I have to back up a little bit. When I Please first do. about failure and use the word explicitly, mm -hmm. I understood this problem that you just outlined. But the fact of the matter is there have always been failures or shortcomings, if you prefer to use a euphemism. In my opinion, then, uh, since there always been have always been failures, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when I set out, the re reason I came upon failure was that I wanted to write a book that explained engineering to the layperson, to the general reader, and my working title was "What is Engineering?" And at the time, I myself wasn't totally sure. Here, I I had a PhD in engineering. I was teaching. wow. Okay. I was a professional engineer. I was registered. And yet, if a neighbor asked me, what is engineering? Uh, I, I couldn't give a concise answer. I, I would say something and they'd say, well, what about this? And, and often what they said was, but uh, bridges collapse. Bridges uh, have shortcomings. What are you talking about that engineers know so much about technology? So funny. I actually used the very same example. Go ahead, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So I, 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 what I did basically is um, I, I really had a very interesting approach. At least it interested me. I came up with hypotheses. What is it that is happening here? And uh, if you do uh, a scientific approach to uh, trying to confirm a hypothesis, what do you do? Well, you look for examples that either confirm or deny it. So uh, the hypothesis might be, for example, that success breeds success. And because that's, I think, the common idea. Um, and I can give examples of that, but I, 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 I don't want to get a sidetrack too much. But it's not success that breeds success. It's failure that breeds success. And uh, I, looked for, I looked for historical examples to confirm or refute my hypothesis. Where I found the most examples were in mm -hmm. British engineering history. The British wrote a lot about bridges, and all of their engineering projects, whereas the Americans had not at this time. And here I'm talking about the 1980s, recently. Going 1980s? To, oh, yes, okay. To the library, it was not easy to find books that had failure in the title. And uh, it was uh, sort of looked down upon to admit that engineers made, that made, uh, excuse me, made mistakes that led to failures. But the more I found, the more I read, the more I looked into history, where engineers really learned was when a bridge failed or a bridge, a building failed or anything, any product of engineering failed. And they had to look for the reason why. Why did it fail? And by looking for the reason why, it revealed weaknesses in their theories or their understandings or incompletenesses. We're seeing the same thing now in the recent collapse in Florida of the condos, for example. Why are yeah. they through all that debris looking for clues 
because they want to understand what it is that engineers that design that structure didn't understand completely that caused it to fail. And when they find that, and they will, 99.9% uh, .9 sure they will, then those mistakes hopefully will not be made again because they're known to be mistakes. They're known to lead to failures. So it's failure that will advance. It's understanding failure that will advance the technology. It's understanding failures that really advances all of our knowledge. When we talk about engineering, um, I in 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 the realm of infrastructure, um, you know, you think of marvels um, of the past. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and as a kid, I used to walk on the you know. The, the bridge and later as an adult jog on it and every time i went there i, I was in total awe here i am haven't seen this bridge for 30 years i'm still in awe when i go there um you have a book titled engineers of dreams great bridge builders and the spanning of america my question is this have we reached an era in which we sort of take these grand infrastructure projects for granted anything is possible now are we no longer awed by awesome engineering feats uh, i uh don't think engineers are <laughs> i'm not i can tell you that yeah but have we reached an age that you think anything is possible now no i don't think we'll ever reach an age where everything is possible i mean in, in terms Interesting. of physical objects I mean, by everything, I mean everything, physical, yeah, yeah. not physical. But in terms of physical infrastructure, uh, engineers tend to say, well, I can do anything or we can do anything as long as I am given enough money and enough time. A uh, hundred years ago, engineers were predicting, as I described in that book you just mentioned, Engineers of Dreams, mm. building a bridge across the Atlantic Ocean. That was considered doable. Uh, Whoa, a hundred years ago. Yeah. Now, you I apologize for interrupting. They considered it doable then, or they considered it doable in the future? No, then. But it takes a lot of money. It would have taken a lot of money. Would it be? <laughs> and, and would it be doable now? Excuse me. Would Would such a bridge be doable now across the Atlantic? Yes. My goodness. Okay. Uh, now, you mentioned San Francisco and. You didn't mention the Golden Gate Bridge by name, but I think that's the bridge you were referring to. Yeah, I did. Oh, I, I thought I did. Yeah, Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. You did. Uh, but that's a very interesting example. I would say Golden Gate Bridge can be considered both a success and a failure. What's the failure aspect of it? Well, when it was built, uh, it was uh, built in a climate, the late 1930s in particular, when the aesthetic of bridges was to make them look very slender, and the economy of bridges was to make them very light. So the Golden Gate Bridge was flexible. Everybody recalls the Tacoma Narrows Bridge that was uh, so flexible that it wrote, uh, tore itself apart up in Northwest. Uh, I've seen the video in my physics class in high school. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge uh, misbehaved uh, like that within years of its being constructed. Uh, really? The reason it didn't collapse, hasn't collapsed uh, yet due to the wind, is because it was retrofitted or 
adjusted by adding more steel, making it stiffer. Now, there's another part of the story, too. There are several oh, parts. Wow. Very interesting, I think. Um, today, and for, for decades, it, it would be nice to take the BART system, the, the San Francisco Bay yes, Area. Yes, Bay Area Transit, Rapid Transit, yeah. And take it into Marin County, which is where the Golden Gate Bridge goes from San Francisco. <laughs> it can't be done. Why can't it be done? Politics. That was added to the Golden Gate Bridge to stiffen it, to keep it steady in the wind, uh, means that the bridge is at its basically at its uh, ultimate point. It can't go, it can't take much more weight. And to prove that, when the Golden Gate Bridge celebrated its 50th anniversary in 1987, it was advertised as a day that, that no traffic would tra travel across the bridge, but pedestrians would have. Free reign. They could walk wherever they wanted across the bridge. So many people showed up. This is 1987. Yeah. To uh, walk on the bridge that they filled the bridge shoulder to shoulder. That equaled the heaviest weight the bridge had ever experienced. And what happened was the center of the bridge deflected down about, I think it's 10 feet. I have to double check the amount. But engineers observing this were actually literally concerned that maybe the bridge was going to collapse. You so know, when, I, I was there in 1987, not on the bridge. I'd lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Was this in the news? This, yes. this. I mean, I mean, uh, the the potential failure. I'm not talking about the walk on the bridge. The walk on the bridge was on the news. I remember that. But yeah. this, well, this, as you say, <laughs> there's an aversion to talking about failure. Uh, I'm sure you know there were some, some people that would prefer it not be talked about. Um, uh, it's wow. well known among engineers, and I believe it was well known at the time, but it was not a front page story. It was buried. So, have the Golden Gate Bridge's shortcomings or potential failures been been, been addressed now? Well, that's that's also interesting. Uh, well, as far as that incident that we've been talking about in 1987, there's nothing that can be done about that except keep the load on the bridge limited. So when the 75th anniversary approached, there was no open bridge. You couldn't just walk out on the bridge because they oh, knew that. Interesting. Overweight. Now, if you do the calculation, having people standing on the bridge is worse than bumper-to-bumper uh, -bumper traffic. But are there still problems? Yes, there's a very interesting recent uh, story. And this is where failure uh, comes in that doesn't have to be exactly collapsed. The, uh, uh, I guess it's, you call it the railing of the bridge on the side of the bridge. That was all part, in, integral with the, the design of it was integral with the architectural design of the bridge, the aesthetics of it, let's say, not the function so much. Uh, and in order to um, update the bridge, lighten it a bit, I believe, uh, the railing has recently, and I'm talking about within the last year, uh, been modified, and the modification was was almost trivial. The slats that make up the, I guess, is the balustrade of, of the bridge, were were changed from facing the wind to uh, not facing the wind. In other words, you 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 had it originally the wind was hitting them sideways. They were turned this way so that wind would they would cut through the wind. But what that has done is created a lot of vibration, and that means a lot of noise, 
And people around the bridge, as I understand it from all reports I've read, and I'm talking about maybe the engineering literature more than anything, is that a lot of people have been complaining about this. So here's a change that was thought to be for the better that actually has resulted in another kind of failure. That's failure fascinating. Of, and this is in the last couple of years. The acoustic environment failure. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm going to definitely have to visit my uh, home area again. About that. This is a common feature of uh, failures. You make a little change. It seems to be trivial. It seems to be maybe aesthetic. It seems to be just, you know, who cares? Exactly, yeah. And it, and it can cause the downfall of, of a structure. This happened in Kansas City in 1981. There was a famous uh, Kansas City Hyatt Regency Hotel. They had internal walkways that were elevated. Uh, that design was proof, proved to be inadequate. How, did, how was it proved to be inadequate? It collapsed. Over 100 <laughs> people were killed. And it was oh traced to a minor change. A minor change. What appeared to be a minor change in the design. Emphasize my point that there's a continuum of all this. When the Surfside uh, Florida condo collapsed, the initial uh, reports were saying it was expected that it might be the largest uh, uh Loss of life due to a structural collapse in American history. And they brought up this Hyatt Regency walkway that I just described as the previous record holder, if we can use that term just for short. Oh, okay. It proved not to be the case because uh, the death toll in Surfside in Florida was 100. The death toll in Kansas City at this Hyatt Regency hotel was 114. So it still is the worst structural disaster in the United States. And among engineers, it's widely known and it, it's widely taught. And understanding it takes nothing but what engineers learn in their first year in college. Wow. So those failures actually become uh, extremely important lessons for future from, 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 from the Hyatt Regency to... Florida condos to little, little, little tiny changes in the Golden Gate Bridge. Why don't we take a short break, uh, Professor Petrosky, and then talk about infrastructure funding. <music> Professor Petrosky, I'm going to ask a simple question. <laughs> For a rather complex issue. How is infrastructure funded? Early roads, and here we're talking about going back to the early years of the country, even back to colonial times, if, if you will. Uh, roads were often were uh, a local issue. It had a bunch of uh, farmers. Let's a local, say, you mean state or county? I mean, even less than county. Oh, and in today's terms, I mean a block, a large city block, let's say, built along what we might today call a road, but in those days might have been just a, a way, a path, a lane, probably made of dirt. And when it rained, it was muddy and so forth. Um, that was a great inconvenience. And uh, of course, with, with the horses that we talked about earlier in the show. They were muddy even in a highly populated area, densely populated area like Brooklyn. Uh, yes, in uh, Fifth Avenue, New York City, the famous Fifth Avenue was uh, not very pleasant 
100 years ago, let's say. There, oh, this is wow. documented about it, but photographically. Whoa. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Fifth Avenue, the fancy schmancy Fifth Avenue was a muddy dirt road. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Always. The Midtown section wasn't always there. New York started out in the southern tip of Manhattan, what we today call the Wall Street area. Downtown area. New York City. And New York City was totally separate from everything else around it, including Brooklyn, which is uh, across the river, the so-called East River. On the other side of Manhattan is the Hudson River, and that separates New York State and New York City from New Jersey. Yeah. Geographically, just about every city that was founded back before the uh, 1800s was in, situated like that because that gave them harbors. Mm -hmm. if, if you wanted to um, go across a continent, there were no roads, there were no railroads, there were no airplanes, of course. You used a ship. And to get from, say, New York to San Francisco, you went all the way south around South America and all the way up the West Coast, up to, let's say, San Francisco. There was, was no Panama Canal. That's what made the the, um, <laughs> the uh, Panama Canal so important. That half the, uh, uh, the length of the voyage from New York to San Francisco and back back and forth. So we were talking about block parties, and and you used a modern um, sort of analogy to talk about how uh, infrastructure roads were built uh, back in the I guess early eighteen hundreds or mid uh, mid to late seventeen hundreds. People actually took care of it at the local level. That's right. Now, I'm not talking about New York City literally here, but I'm talking about a group of people. And that's why I introduced the concept of block. Okay. A bunch of people that lived in close proximity to each other. Like in a rural area today, let's, let's say, um, they would, it would be to great advantage to the farmers in the area to have a good road so they could take their products to wherever they were going. And that usually meant a port or a uh, canal that would get them to a port. Everything was, this is called inland transportation or sometimes inland communication. The, you, the word communication uh, had a lot of much broader meaning back then. You want to communicate between uh, New York and San Francisco, not just uh, by <laughs> telegraph. You want to communicate with it physically to get your goods and uh, people between them. Oh, so, wow. So communication had a different definition, a broader definition. Interesting. So uh, anyway, uh, as you can tell, it's easy to get uh, on a tangent of this. But the local people, uh, because there, there wasn't a great established government to, to do roads, and that was not expected necessarily. Uh, people were self-sufficient. They thought if they wanted a better road, they should get together and build a better road. And that meant a primitive road that might just be leveling it out uh, or putting gravel down and later you know, putting tar on it. And this happens in, uh, take a gated community today. That's like an isolated, independent entity. If they want a, a new road, they do it themselves. The government's not going to come in because these are private roads. Uh, these things don't just uh, happen in history. They continue through, through today. Uh, so the early uh, early years into the even in when the country was the nation was formed, uh, in lieu of paying taxes, which were a way of getting some entity that we today call a government to uh, build and maintain roads, the people themselves that, that 
let's say, bordered the road, would do the maintenance in lieu of paying taxes. They would be excused of their taxes if they took the maintenance jobs themselves. This led to a lot of private enterprise. So if you wanted a longer road, or if you wanted a bridge to carry a longer road across a deep valley, it would be private enterprise that would likely do it. And why would private enterprise do it? Here we're getting beyond the block. We're going into the region, maybe across the nation. The reason they did it is because they would get a return on investment, just like today. That's why investors do what they do. You mean toll roads? Toll roads, exactly. Or turnpikes, just just to not get get too diffuse. It's this kind of concept that led to a hodgepodge of roads across the United States. Hodgepodge of roads, okay. Because there were all these separate, you know, this, this group built this road that might go from here to there, might go from, uh, let's say, uh, San Francisco down to San Jose. That would be a very, very long road for that time. Somebody else might um, make a road from San Jose to where? Um, to, to, let's say, Gilroy, which is about half an hour south of it. Um, yeah. The Carla capital of the world. There you go. Fairly the same investment group or company. Yeah. So that's what I mean by hodgepodge. These were not the same company, so they were not uniform. They were not made to the same standards. So the roads went from good to bad to poor to better and so forth. And in the early 20th century, this was the situation in the United States. So from what you're saying is that the federal government didn't necessarily get involved. Not at that point. How about the state government? We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that. The, the, by the way, the reason the federal government didn't get involved is it wasn't authorized in the Constitution to get involved. It wasn't enabled to get involved. There's nowhere in the Constitution that says that the federal government must build roads, except for post roads, meaning the mail delivery uh, post roads. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, to, to this day, uh, the federal government does not own roads or bridges, that it funds, I put funds in quotes, because that's another aspect of the story. It's not the federal government that's funding anything. It's the taxpayers that are funding things. Where does the federal government get its money? Of course, from taxes. From us. Levies it on imports, tariffs, and so forth. But it comes from external to the government. It comes from uh, commerce. It comes from individual effort. And, and so forth. Uh, where, where do you want to go from this? Because it could be a long story or short story. No, I, this is where I want to go. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you gave me this uh, opportunity to ask this question. How is this, and I don't want to, briefly, if you would, please, I don't want to spend too much time here because we have several exciting other stuff to talk about. How, how is this, how, how does funding of infrastructure in America, at least in earlier years, compared to sort of international infrastructures. I remember in an email exchange we had, you talked about the Suez Canal, for example. That was a private enterprise. It was a private enterprise. Uh, the French, the French, uh, led by a fellow named De Lesseps, uh, they raised money and uh, got that uh, canal. Uh, got that canal. Now, that's a very interesting story. I'll just say one sentence of tangent. 
the Golden Gate Bridge was effectively private enterprise. It was government related. They had to have government approval to issue bonds, but then all the local individual communities that benefited from it had to back those bonds. The government didn't take the initiative on that. That's let's put it that that way. Now, so the Suez Canal here we're talking seventy around somewhere around that time, because the Suez Canal was considered a success. That's what led the French then to invest in a canal across Central America, what we today know to know as the Panama Canal. Now, thinking about by the French, you mean the French government or French private companies invest? About private enterprise. Okay. Sometimes government needs to be involved only to give the go-ahead. In other words, today you can't build a bridge between uh, New York and New Jersey because you're going to cross state lines. There has to be some arbiter, and that usually is a government. Government, yeah. Depending on how the government operates in a particular country, maybe you can't build a bridge at all unless you're authorized. And the reason for the authorization is the same, very similar to the patent system. If somebody wants to build a major road or bridge, that's a lot of money. They want to be protected. They want to be protected so that they, the time it takes them to build that, design and build it, might be years, maybe even a decade. Uh, if somebody else in the meantime comes and builds a competing one beside them, then all their calculations about the use of this bridge and the volume it will carry and the tolls it will generate are for nothing, and they lose all their investment. So the government usually would give concessions. This happens everywhere, pretty much. Okay, so in, in, in the... Uh, United States, uh, let me get back to the Suez Canal because this is an interesting story. So the mm -hmm. Suez Canal was successful. And this gets back to success and failure also. Everything's interconnected. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm beginning to see that, yeah. This is all got to do with human beings and doing business, communicating with each other, making effort to advance society and technology. So the Suez Canal is a success. The French say, well, let's, let's invest in a Panama Canal. That'll be a greater success. So what, what happens is the Suez Canal was easy technologically, relatively speaking, because that land is flat and easily dug. The Panama Canal, on the other hand, had it cross the continental divide that goes from North America through Central America down to South America. That proved to be almost insurmountable. The French started that project for various reasons, including what I just outlined, and also for reasons of uh, labor. Uh, th there was a lot of tropical disease in Panama. It wasn't called Panama then, but I'll, we'll call it that for the sake of simplicity. Uh, the workforce was decimated. The French gave up, basically. The private investors sold the equipment they had down there and all that, you know, fire sale prices to the United States. The United States government then did get involved because they saw the benefit. Now, this is, we're talking about around the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm, 19th, mm -hmm. and so yeah. the Ray Roosevelt was president, yes. That this would benefit the entire country, getting goods from the East Coast to the West Coast and vice versa, by ha not having to go through that back uh, down along South America. Plus, there were military interests. Of course. It, the United States is invaded on the East Coast. You want to get your materials from the West Coast to the East Coast. Wouldn't it be nicer if you had a canal shortcut? So yeah. the military starts coming back into infrastructure at, at this point. 
And this will, as you probably, everybody listening probably anticipates, oh, aha, the interstate highway system, exactly. Same reason, military, military. Yeah. Well, that's another story that we'll get into probably in the next segment. We will. Um, another thing that I just wanted to share with you, you, you know, how everything's interconnected. I recently read uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about how climate change is is severely, um, in fact, quite severely impacting um, the Panama Canal, how seasons of drought and then followed by severe storms are really making calculations of water levels really difficult for them. Um, um, so anyway, that's, that's something that I thought was very interesting. Very interesting, because when the Panama Canal was being designed, and when I say designed, I meant redesigned by the Americans to make it a successful endeavor. Mm -hmm. That was one of the key ideas that was considered. The storms and water. So they had a, they had to know rainfall amounts. They had to know seasonal variations. They had to know drought conditions and when it would occur, because all those situations determine how large the reservoir they built would be in order to provide enough water to. Make the make the canal locks uh, work. As as you probably know, uh, in order to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific, you got to raise the ships over this hump in the middle of uh, the, the isthmus. So you raise them with with water and with goes, lock systems. Yeah, goes, yeah, the lock system. I bet it takes a lot of water because you bring the water in, you fill up the bathtub, so to speak. You let it grow, then you open it up to float out at a higher level. But then what do you do with that water? Well, you empty it out. It's just, it's, it's not recirculated. Exactly. Uh, so those, the, the point of the article is that those numbers are now outdated because of climate change, which really just... Um, oh, I would, I would check that. Uh, when I say check it, I would like to look at the numbers because what has happened in the meantime is that the Panama Canal has been expanded. This is not the original. I was talking about original calculations. If, we, if the Panama Canal had not been expanded, I don't know if this would be true, what you just described. The Panama Canal was expanded. Why? Because there are large container ships that came into uh, service in the late 20th century. And those container ships grew so large, they couldn't fit through the Panama Canal. That's why the West Coast benefited so much from Asia Pacific uh, commerce, but not the East Coast. So what did the canal uh, authorities do? And by this time, the canal is now no longer under the auspices of the U.S. Canada up to Panama. What did what happened? Well, they built a, a, a parallel set of locks that are wider to accommodate these larger ships. Now, where did the, the where did the extra water come from? Well, <laughs> it doesn't get a, It's not going to rain. That's that so interesting. So that's a variable that adds to the yeah. So this is another example of, okay, the original design would have worked and it might still be working, but it's been pushed beyond its limits. I see. Now, one other thing about, about this, since we mentioned, I mentioned container shifts, <laughs> uh, most people will remember the recent um, situation in the Suez Canal where this large container yeah. jammed in there. This is one of those extra, extra large container ships. Now, the Suez Canal accommodated it, but what happened, the wind uh, caused it to get jammed sideways. And uh, the, that's, it's very complicated why, why, why this happened. 
But what did that do? That one ship being jammed in the Suez Canal wreaked havoc with world trade. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, shortage in the uh, pipeline of uh, parts uh, and certain and, and, and components uh, from where they were made to where they were assembled. And Do you think they're going to expand the Suez Canal again yeah. to to accommodate these larger mega ships? They have been. Yes, they have been. But these things take can take decades. Yeah. You know, bring it to fruition. Yeah. Uh, why don't we take a short break here, please, uh, Professor Petrosky, and then come back and talk about the U.S. Inter interstate system. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Petrosky, how did America's highway system come about we talked about dead road you know <laughs> dirt roads and mud roads and uh, small communities uh, putting their efforts together to come up with a road to help their communities but now we're talking about these gigantic infrastructure projects how did that come about well if we're, if we're going to stick with roads as a metaphor for all of infrastructure in the early 20th century, the United States uh, uh, had a, I used the term hodgepodge before of roads of yeah. that were individually built. They were not uniformly built. They didn't uh, easily connect distant cities with other distant cities. You had a sort of zigzag across the country. The, uh, there was an attempt beginning in the uh, 20s or so to get more national roads. In fact, some of the roads that were interconnected became called national roads. And these were still private enterprise, um, individually built. The government wasn't really directly involved in any, any great way, other than maybe locally, there might be um, a state, let's say, that might say, well, you know, we, even just within our state, we have all these roads and they're marked in different ways. There's not a uniform system of numbering. You can't find Route 1 and Route 2 and know where they are on a map. So states might impose some kind of regulation like that. And it might not be mandatory. These are terms that are being used today. It might just be recommendations. But if everybody saw the benefit of it, they would, they would do it, even though they didn't have to do it, strictly speaking. In the... Uh, of course, the internal combustion engine was introduced in nineteen in early 1900s in, in a significant way. Yeah. And Ford, the famous Henry Ford, introduced his, you know, model cars. And I, I, I will say um, that the internal combustion engine was introduced Ford. Ford introduced the internal combustion engine in a big, big way. At that time, in the early 1900s, say the 19 zeros, the 1910, there were more electric cars on the roads than there were internal combustion engines. Uh, excuse, is, uh, excuse me, could you repeat that? There were more electric cars? Yep. I mean, we had electric cars back in the early 1900s? 
we had electricity back then, didn't we? We had batteries. And what do you need to do an electric car? You need a you need electricity, you need batteries, and you need motors. So that that technology was all there. But it was natural to make uh, an automobile that way. But this anyway. is a, this is a whole different conversation. But I chuckle because it's taken a century to actually have electric cars on the road. Finally, oh, wow, that's fascinating. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say it that way. I mean, I, I would. I, we had, they were on the road, <laughs> not not in a significant but, way. You know, what happened was the internal combustion engine pushed them off the road. Oh, I see. I see. That's what you mean. Yeah, that that, that really is my my, my point. But that's anyway, good. getting back to the roads proper. Um, Henry Ford, who builds the roads? You got increasing numbers of automobiles and mostly internal combustion engines when we get into the 1920s. By that time, it had been well established after World War I. I, I have a discussion of this in my book. The, the, the number of automobiles is increasing exponentially in you know, loose terms. Uh, who's going to build the roads to carry these um, cars? Should the government do it or should uh, the people who build the cars do it? After all, it's because of the cars that you need the roads. At least yeah. roads are not bumpy and full of mud and slush and all, all that stuff. Could, could horses uh, traverse those roads easier than cars? In fact, if a car got stuck in the mud, what did they do? They called a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so any. Old technology often comes to the rescue of new technology. Yeah, I can see it in that case, yeah. So uh, in, in 1919, I believe it was, the, the Army was interested in knowing if the national system of roads, if we could call it a system, mm -hmm. uh, was sufficient to take military troops and equipment across the country in the event of uh, an invasion or war, the need to do so. And uh, there was a convoy of, oh, I don't know, 80, 90 vehicles, uh, internal combustion, uh, because there were no electric charging stations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, uh, one of the people, one of the military, young military officers in that convoy was Dwight Eisenhower. And that convoy, and Eisenhower in particular, experienced the roads of 1919 in the United States. And we can use the word failure. They failed. <laughs> yeah. So here's a person that will later become America's president and he's experiencing firsthand America's roads in 1919. That's right. And to get from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, I think is where they terminated. I think it took them of the order of 80 days, maybe 82 days. I don't remember the exact number. <laughs> oh my God. That's like 80 days around the world, but 80 days from D.C. to San Francisco. Uh, Eisenhower knew the uh, poor condition of American roads at that point. Then, you know, during World War II and being over in Europe, Eisenhower also observed European roads like the Autobahn, for example, that were far superior. Autobahn in Germany, like H yeah. Hitler's. Uh, These two together, yeah. and uh, he's got the idea, stewing in his head, that, uh, and so do other people, by, by the way, mm -hmm. that. We, we, we need a national system of roads and the federal, how are you going to get a national system of roads across 48 states that don't, you know, really cooperate totally? Well, this is interstate stuff. Well, the federal government has to step in 
And out of this, this is making a very long story short, out of this comes the interstate highway system. The uh, legislation was passed in the 18, not, <laughs> 1950s, oh. <I> think, <laughs> if I'm right. 1950s. What did that legislation do? Well, it basically established the interstate highway system as we know it. And how did the Fed, what role did the federal government play? The role that the federal government played was it didn't build the roads, it didn't own the roads. What it did is it gave states and other entities, local, regional entities, 90% of the cost of building those roads. 90%. Well, that's a pretty good incentive. So the local state governments took, took them up on it because basically they were getting free roads. And that, that happened, of course. And um, You mean the federal government paid local governments 90% of the cost of building these roads? It, it still does that to a large extent. I won't, not, not necessarily 90, but the bulk of it, yes. Now, where does the federal government get this money? From that's, us. That's what's being debated in Washington, not only this week, uh, this year, but for the last oh, decades, for the last decades in this country, this has been debated. And we'll get to it, but part of that legislation in 1957 was getting the federal government pocket of money that they could distribute to the states. And how do you do that? Taxes. What kind of taxes? Well, if we're talking about roads, gasoline taxes, because virtually every vehicle using the roads used gasoline to run its internal combustion. Uh, and at that time, I think it was a penny and a half a gallon or something like that. Wow. With inflation, with the increasing cost of technology and road building and so forth. By the mid-1990s now, and this is about uh, you know 40 years later. The gas tax, I think it was 18.4 cents a gallon. Here we're talking about you know gasoline, not diesel fuel. We're talking about yeah. gas. Yeah. 18.4 cents a gallon. Now, what do you think it is today per gallon? The federal gasoline tax. You know, it's not I, fair to ask you that, but it's still 18.4 cents a gallon because the government. The legislators in Washington, the politicians, they don't like to raise taxes. So the, the, all this money from the gas tax was going into what was called the Highway Trust Fund, which was established as part of the uh, Highway Act. That Highway Trust Fund was doing fine as long as the money was coming in and being passed through to the states. And everything was working fine except for a little corruption, but that's another story. <laughs> a lot of corruption, but that's another story. <laughs> corruption tends to uh, tends to make for very juicy stories, and maybe we'll, we'll get to that as well. What I want to know, uh, since we're talking about uh, Ike and the 1950s, and Professor Petrosky, you know how we're having the debate about infrastructure budget, and I, and I don't want to get into the politics of this infrastructure uh, funding debate. Was there such a brouhaha about it in the news back then uh, as well? Was it a big controversy to have? Uh, I don't a, anything uh, was in the news the way it is today, so politically uh, divisive. What made the news in those days was more scandals. <laughs> yeah. I delivered the newspapers in the 1950s when uh, the interstate highway system was being developed, all this legislation was going through. I 
I folded the newspapers to uh, stuff them in my bag and throw them from my bicycle. So I saw the headlines every day. This was not. Oh, that is so. <laughs> if I can plug another book, uh, I wrote a do. book called Paperboy, which Paper. is a, sort of a memoir of my years delivering newspapers. And it relies heavily on the news, on the headlines of the day. So this is uh, something that I directly experienced consciously. Interesting. And this, I, 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 this, this, was, this was reported on this kind of thing, but it was not. It was the scandals that made it. It was the wars. It was conflict. But yeah. not, not this kind of thing. Okay. So, so then we have gasoline tax at 18.4 cents a gallon, the same as it was back then. If you look at the gas pump, it used to be that they listed all the taxes. I haven't seen that lately. Now, I, I, I don't think I've seen it either. Yeah. On top of the federal gasoline tax was state gasoline taxes and other municipals and so forth, which contributed to the cost of uh, fuel, but not it, it didn't necessarily make up uh, you know the bulk of it that changes the prices the way we see them being changed. So the gasoline tax has not increased as has not kept with uh, infrastructure demand. The federal. The federal. The federal yes means that the states were sort of forced to raise their taxes because, you know, the federal government doesn't have to balance its budget, or so they say and don't, but the <laughs> state government, by law, have to. So if they're running short, they look the sources of revenue, and one is the you know, gasoline tank. But this is one of the things about the infrastructure bill that is under consideration, uh, uh, and it's it's not widely reported because it's I don't know I guess it's just not that interesting to most people but should be should be because it's what directly impacts them. Now what's happening now? In the meantime, this is this is interesting. This is how technology interacts and everything's sort of interconnected again. In the meantime, the government, the federal government, has been promoting electric vehicles and energy efficient vehicles. What does an energy efficient vehicle do? It uses less gasoline. That means less revenue going into this highway trust fund. What do electric vehicles use? No gasoline. Therefore, contribution. Now, that's been rectified to a certain extent by charging fees to electric vehicle owners. But this comes up, this is a big decision that's going to be made about infrastructure funding, not infrastructure itself. Uh, what, what are we going to do about all these vehicles using our roads, our infrastructure? Are we going to charge them taxes on the fuel they use? How do you charge on electric fuel? What is, a, what is electric fuel? Or are we going to charge a user fee? If you drive so many miles on this state's roads, you pay that state. Are those discussions being had right now, or is this something that you anticipate? They, they have been encouraged, and they have been tried. For, for a couple of decades now, uh, they've been discussed about Oregon had, had actually a program. I saw somewhere recently that the federal government is even getting into this uh, uh, funding uh, pilot programs to you know, see what this is like. But it's going to it's going to happen unless. Uh, well, unless there's a, a, a big uh, it could could go to the Supreme Court. Can, it, these taxes is the kind of thing that the court deals with so i don't know what's going to happen but this is it's going to go one way or the other or maybe it's going to be both but uh how to fund the important thing is how do you fund the highway trust fund so that it has enough money to maintain our roads and all these complaints about um, the potholes poor roads deteriorating bridges 
the way that they're, they're, they're fixed is by having money to hire a contractor that'll fix them. And where's that money come from? Well, it had been coming from the federal government highway trust. Since that's being taxed so much, taxed in the sense of being used so much, uh, it, it's, it's running into a serious uh, decision-making uh, that's going to have to be made soon because the federal government has been adding tens of billions of dollars every year to make that trust fund whole. And this was not what they bargained for. So the federal government wants to get out of this. And one of my predictions is that it'll throw it to the states. You want states' rights? You want to be on your own? You take care of the roads. We're not going to pay for them anymore. Oh, wow. That's 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 a big political... That would be a big political move. Um, that's why it's not being done yet. But Yeah. Let's take a break here, Professor Petrosky. So stay with me and Professor Petrosky as we get into the perspective. Professor Petrosky, when it comes to infrastructure, of course, we're talking about big money in the billions, in fact, I guess trillions now. Um, this has got to be prime opportunity for corruption, for pork barrel politics, right? Of course. And, and by the way, the, the, the infrastructure we've been talking about, roads and bridges, uh, I don't think that's in the trillions. I think that's in the hundreds of billions. You're, you're right. That's, that's, a that's a segment of the infrastructure bill. You're right. So, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well, you go ahead. You asked the question. Sure. Uh, so, what, how rife has corruption been in the history of America's infrastructure? Is this... Very rife. <laughs> Very rife. Within, within a year or two of the interstate highway system being started, it was, uh, there were complaints. And this kind of thing was reported in the newspapers because it's a scandal. Yeah. For costing like twice as much as they should and so forth. Um, one story I repeat in, the, um, in my book is about the a parkway. Parkways are often private investments. And uh, the government, the state government may get involved. You know, we have the Garden State Parkway in New, New Jersey. Uh, in the Midwest, we have a lot of uh, roads that um, are dedicated to uh, regional travel. And these are often um, private enterprises or, um, let's say, crony enterprises might be a way of, of putting it. Crony enterprises, interesting. Let's say you want to you build a, uh, a highway uh, between point A and point B in some state. Uh, that means you have to get the right-of-way. Uh, real estate in that right-of-way is going to greatly benefit uh, by having its value go up. Uh, and what's going to happen if, uh, if certain people, such as politicians or people involved in infrastructure business, uh, know the route, they can uh, invest wisely, let's say, and they can make a profit. Some people call that corruption because this stuff is supposed to be done with some even-handedness, and uh, such decisions are supposed to be uh, made uh, with the greatest uh, intentions. Uh, it's sort of like insider trading, uh, let's say, on Wall Street, which is looked down, down upon. So, yes, that's where corruption comes in. Uh, how much 
how much do you uh, charge for uh, paving a road? Uh, most of these contracts are given out in competitive bidding, which means, uh, say, a state highway needs to be repaved between two cities. The state will advertise requests for bids or proposals, RFP, they're sometimes referred to. Different contractors uh, will put in their bids, and uh, it used to be the case, at least, that it was almost always the low bid that came uh, that won. Now, that can be fixed quite easily by collusion. Uh, different contractors can get together and say, okay, this is your turn. Uh, you put in a bid of what you want, how much you want to make. Uh, we'll all put in higher bids. You'll get the bid. That's one theoretical way you can fix it. Uh, wow. I call that uh, collusion. Uh, in other cases, uh, maybe there's just one bid. In, uh, increasingly, uh, these days, uh, it's not just the low bid that is the criterion, but there are only softer, softer issues. You know, of, uh, how do you judge the bids? How do you distinguish between them? Which one is the best uh, to take? Uh, one example of this uh, that is sort of timely uh, is the um, what's called the Mario Cuomo Bridge in New York State, which goes across the Hudson River and carries the New York State Thruway from the east bank to the west bank. It's a very wide part of the river. Uh, it's a very essential uh, part of the infrastructure. Uh, a couple, about a de couple decades ago, they started planning for that bridge. And uh, the criteria for selecting the contractor was not just the price, but aesthetics and other stuff that you could say was soft, not, yeah. like, not hard numbers. Uh, there's been a lot of scandal associated with that bridge. Well, it's a Cuomo bridge. Some people would say, I'm not going to say that. But um, so, so the, the corruption, yeah, it's, it's, it's with us. Has corruption, in, uh, sort of the level of corruption stayed the same, let's say, in the last 80, 90 years? Or has it decreased because there's more, um, uh, there's more sort of inspection and, and uh, vigilance? Inspection can be corrupt, can't it? That's that's true. The reason some the reason some bridges collapse is because of inadequate inspection, and there are numerous examples of this. One of the most recent is across uh, uh, the Mississippi River. I think it's at Memphis. A bridge uh, was inspected and said to be okay, but it collapsed shortly thereafter. Um, now I'm not saying that's corruption, but I, I'm saying that uh, the uh, inspection was inadequate. Why was the inspection inadequate? Could be that whoever was doing the inspection, and by, when I say whoever, I mean what company, maybe they were squeezed to really give a really small contract, a small amount of money, do it for a small amount of money. Um, so they cut corners? So they cut corners. The bridge that collapsed in Miami uh, three years ago now, in uh, Miami across the, uh, well, it was Route 41 down there, um, that was poorly inspected. Uh, the bridge across the Mississippi at Minneapolis that collapsed about 10 years ago, maybe, uh, that was traced to uh, inadequate inspection. Not necessarily deliberate, but uh, these could be the consequences of deliberate, um, uh, deliberately not doing the job properly. So we can't just, we, we, I mean, we have to rely on these things, but we have to recognize 
that they have their own faults. They have their own modes of failure, if, if you will. Yeah. Um, Professor Petrosky, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.